Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that A Century of Elvis by Bell and Sebastian was actually released before A Century of Fakers by Bell and Sebastian, which will mean very little to you if you don't know much about Bell and Sebastian, but take it from me, it is funny. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is juggler Gillian Kirby. Gillian! What are you up to? Where can we find it? Well, mostly I'm not juggling. I have the coordination of a drunk chimp, but I'm at the moment mostly uh, being an idiot on Twitter and trying to do things that I'm eventually going to put out in the public eye, but I'm a bit too afraid to. That's nicely vague, that is. (laughs) We're not giving any clues. Speaking of no clues, your first choice has got even me stumped, so we're going to talk about it and see if anyone out there can work out exactly which episode of Dramarama this was. Okay, that was the famous vocoder, red curtain and yellow letters that introduced Dramarama that a lot of kids were scared of for some reason. But this is an episode that wasn't scary. And Gillian, what happened in it? Well, I don't remember very much, which is the slight problem. But it was a two children, a boy and a girl, and I think they were siblings, deciding that they wanted to walk around the whole of England via the coasts. And then they found out they couldn't do it because there were cliffs and things in the way. Now, I looked up Dramarama to see if I could actually find out when this aired or what it was called or anything like that. And it turns out Dramarama in general is quite a spooky kind of series. There are lots of kind of children's horror, which wasn't what I remembered at all. Yeah, I mean, that's weirdly, that's how I remember it, is mainly the terrifying stuff and also the weird stuff like the young person's guide to getting their ball back and so on, which is the, the really odd thing about the boy who, well, he went to get his ball back and was just sort of odd core to people like Patrick Troughton giving abstract life advice or something along those lines but I do remember there were kind of comedy ones there were there were a lot of outward bound ones which is why this one's been really difficult to narrow down now I've got it down to two potential ones because believe me I've been through every listing I could find because they give away very little about what happened in Dramarama and when I was a kid if it was one that looked like it was you know about earthy adventures of clean cut kids yeah I would just say, right, off, what's on the BBC? So I probably didn't see that one. But what makes it difficult is Dramarama, as far as I remember, they got repeated a lot, including, I think they mixed in repeats with new episodes as well. But I know there was one in 1986 called Wayfarers, about which I know nothing more than the title, and one in, I think, 1988 called the Pisces Connection about two boys on a fishing trip Uh, and also there was one in 89 in the last series called Mitchin which is a kind of it was a sort of comedy pilot for a series I don't think it was made about two boys who bunked off school and got into some kind of scrape which I do vaguely remember seeing but I don't think they were quite plotting a jaunt on that scale but do any of those fit sort of time wise? Maybe but the thing is the memory of that, that being what they set out to do is so specific that either I dreamt it completely and it's a false recovered memory of uh, 
children's drama or it was something else entirely. Now, I, I, like you said, there's, there's not a lot you can find out about drama drama online. It's only a list of titles, which doesn't help very much. But I didn't realise it was actually the genesis for um, the Children's World series as well. Yes, Blackbird Singing in the Dead of Night, yeah. that's what it was called, which had the Beatles' Blackbird as the theme. And I remember that, for some reason, I remember the credits of that with that playing, but I didn't really have any interest in people being sick, so I never used to watch it. <laughs> that was not that happening. It wasn't just somebody vomiting for 25 <laughs> minutes. Well, I, I didn't like Bloods, and I didn't like um, Casualty, because it was a boring adult programme about adults being boring and being gay or dying all the time, so I just decided it wasn't my thing. Well, I'm wondering if it was that Mitchin one from the last series, because mm-hmm. that series is the one that I remember really well, apart from that one, because it had... Codsmorph, which is a weird thing about the the family who live with an alien. There was yeah. Ghost Story, which is a black and white one. Some boys on military manoeuvres and a ghost was involved somehow. There was Back to Front, which is the one everyone remembers, like the boy swap places with his reflection. Yeah. That was really sinister. And also, Rosie the Great, which is a spy spoof with Peter Capaldi in it. No, I won't see that. But the one I don't remember is Mitchin, so it could be that. Mm. I'm guessing that's probably when you would be watching Drama Armor. Very likely. And it's, it just seems odd that in an age when everything's getting either released on DVD or as kind of archive streaming, there isn't more Drama Armor available just because it seemed to be quite a scary program for lots of people. Well, there is a very tedious reason behind that, which is you can get the first series, which is all made by Thames, which they were pretty much all horror stories, including there was, what's that, the dreadful comedy one, oh, the ghostly Earl, but that's got... Mm. War Games of Caroline, the Danny Roberts show, The Exorcism of Amy, all the ones that people of my age sort of tend to remember. But after yeah. that, they all had an episode each made by each ITV region. So you've already got a rights thing. And on top of that, TVS, who made some of the most popular ones, including The Young Person's Guide to Getting Their Ball Back and The Come Up Into Captain Cat, which was written by a disgruntled Doctor Who writer who'd had enough of yeah. Doctor Who and it's about the making of Doctor Who. Their rights, it's a whole weird thing about this. Disney bought the rights to their stuff and destroyed the paperwork and nobody knows who owns what or who to pay so their stuff can't be released so it's all up in the air I'm sure you know somebody would love to put out a complete drama on a box set but it's unfortunately it's not going to be so YouTube is all we have and there's none of them yeah. on there yeah it sounds, it sounds I, I thought you were going to say then that TVS did a kind of a Mike Smith you know with the top of the pops repeats where he refuses or his estate now refuses to have any of his episodes broadcast yeah no sadly it's it all Walt Disney's fault. I'm blaming mm-hmm. him personally in cryogenic suspension. He is responsible for the boy who won the pools not being out on DVD. Pull the plug. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anyone can identify that positively, I would love to know. Because like I say, even TV Times gives away so little about what actually happened in Drama Rama. I think that was deliberate. I think that was, you know, that was keeping an element of surprise for the kids. Yeah. But it makes life very difficult for people like me now. And also, if the author of the hill and beyond the listening there is one episode that you don't mention the plot of at all in your book and that is wayfarers so yeah again thanks for that lads that's really helped my sir maybe they'll do a second edition and you can write the foreword as a kind of thank you for including wayfarers then don't even joke about that things like that have happened when people have said <laughs> things like that in the past okay well in the absence of any more drama drama related info moving on to your next choice which is really something maybe you possibly shouldn't have been watching around that time if you want to know what's on tv anytime any channel 
Ask the expert. Your TV. So, sit back and relax, and let's see what's on tonight, shall we? It'll instantly update you on what's showing in your region, what films are really worth watching. Impact with thrills, spills, and marvelously memorable. Well, what's happening on the soaps? Will Billy stay with Sheila? Will Doe ever return to the close? Will Rod the plot ever marry? The easy way to ask your TV what's on in your region is to page Oracle Teletext. OK, well, from 1989, that's a lovely advert for the ITV Teletext service, Oracle, telling you all the nice, wholesome, improving things you can find on it. But there is one thing it doesn't mention, which is page 380. Gillian, what was on that? Well, we got Teletext in our household about 1989. So around the time, I think, I think it was about 92 when Oracle lost the licence. And then it became Teletext. And the weird thing about Teletext is after 9pm, you got Teletext after dark, which is not some kind of weird uh, pixel-based horror, but it was sexy Teletext. You say sexy Teletext, but I mean, my recollections of it were it was it was like the back page of Sky magazine. It was about yeah. erotic on that level. You know, sort of like kids in school who go, Whoa, rub their hands like Richie and Eddie, but... Yeah. It wasn't quite wasn't quite anything Mary Whitehouse would have been getting too upset over. If she knew how I wasn't sure she'd know how to operate Teletext to be honest. She probably thought it was all wholesome uh, weather reports. Because I remember the letters pages on Teletext were really very right wing, so maybe that's what Mary Whitehouse read. Well it was kind of hidden actually. I don't remember how I found the after hours pages. They were sort of black and dark blue, weren't they? That was the yeah. colour scheme. And there were things like I remember there was a dreadful kind of sex humour strip called Turn of the Screw which yeah. is like some I was about to say it's like a porn version of the Adventures of 4T from Channel 4's Turn of the Sex but that just sounds completely wrong so well, do you remember do you remember Turn of the Worm from um... I do you're going to mention Turn of the Worm being sick aren't you from Digitizer oh, yeah. yeah the one the one that everybody says is attributes to being the last day ever of Teletext or something it wasn't was it it was just when they closed no. Digitizer down anyone who's not seen that I'm not even going to describe it. Go and Google no. Turn of the Worm being sick, but don't do it at work. That is very, very important. Well, it's just a, Tim, it's just a worm being ill. Well, I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> What's not work safe about sick worms? I don't even have an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> but other stuff I remember on it, there were graphics that were kind of the equivalent of those dreadful discs for like the Atari ST that would do the rounds at school, where people would say, oh, it's like nudie pictures on it. And it's really <laughs> sort of blocky. You know, like somebody's like email signature almost. It's like erotic etch sketch or something. Yeah. There was a sex quiz. There was sex scope, which is your erotic horoscopes. I'm convinced there was all some kind of hookup service. Like a kind of couples meet couples thing. That now rings a bell. Um, I remember they had chat That can't be legal, surely. Well, there used to be a pen pal page on um, the teenage bit of teletext. And I think that was basically a contact magazine for bored teenagers. You know, people would write in saying, I like going out and having a laugh and blowing. I want to speak to boys of 15 who like the same things. Was that you? Did you send that in? It was not, but um, it sort of makes sense they'd have some kind of contact magazine type couples thing on there. Now I'm wondering about the Ofcom uh, implications of that, of basically having hookups on teletext. Well, I'm wondering how long it actually lasted, because I will admit I very quickly graduated to, not long after I discovered it, my parents got 
somehow ended up with cable TV. Ah. I don't really know how. And then, you know, you've got the German channels where it's either mind-blowing sort of 60s drug stuff or actual soft porn. And yeah. so that was how your Saturday nights were spent from then on when everyone had gone to bed. Not looking at just blocky lettering waiting forever it to get to the next page. But I believe it didn't last very long. No, I think, I imagine it had a limited audience. You know, obviously back in the, the early 90s, if you wanted to get adult material, was a lot more of an embarrassing procedure but maybe yeah maybe they just got a flood of complaints and thought you know it's not working yeah i mean there is a whole kind of it's a almost a forgotten area of not just television history but cultural history i mean just even the more you know the safer and more anodyne parts of teletext and cfax as well yeah an everyday part of people's lives I've just got forgotten about. I mean, I mentioned 4T on Channel 4. There was, wasn't there a soap opera on Oracle? Park Avenue, yeah. And there was, I won't say too much about this because somebody has earmarked this for a future edition of this, but there was a brief experiment in having CFAX present Saturday morning TV. Oh. BuzzFAX, where it linked it with like blocky pictures of like Jason from Battle of the Planets and Mickey Dolans and so on. And there is no evidence of that out there apart from the one picture of Buzz himself that was in the Radio Times. Yeah, I don't remember that at all, but it sounds very much like something I would have been very into. So now I'm curious as well. But do you remember the last day of CFAX? Maybe not, because I didn't have a TV at the time when that was on. I didn't have a TV with teletext. I remember there was either CFAX or teletext had the gradually shrinking picture. I think that may have been teletext because CFAX, they kind of like went into, at the end, a weird medley of all those, you know, those big full page graphics that you, oh, yeah. the breakfast time cat with its moving tongue lapping milk and so on. And yeah. That thing with the huge cricket bat next to the even bigger tennis ball. <laughs> then it kept having all old bits of pages of CFAX music and it ended with, this is one of those things that you'll know when you hear it. And I might yeah. play out with this actually. Bart by Ruby, who were a band that sort of spun off from Creedence Clearwater Revival, which is that twangy guitar instrumental that they used all the time in sort of the late 70s, early 80s. It was, it was actually a proper record, but it got co-opted by CFAX for some reason. It ended with a caption just saying, CFAX, whatever year to whatever year, thanks for watching, mm. and played out with that. I don't mind admitting that at three in the morning, as a fully grown adult, I burst into tears at that. I feel quite emotional thinking about that now. I, I've got memories in my head now of being being up early enough to see Night Screen with the uh, similar sort of music. Oh, yes, yeah. I forgot about Night Screen. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it was Teletext Pages, wasn't it? It was, and also Job Finder as well. Job Finder, that's the one, yeah, which I think still exists, but it, it looks like it's been done on a computer made after 1990 now. What, so one made in 1991? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> it has corners in it. Do you think the internet killed Teletext and CFAX, or do you think it just served its purpose? Is it just another incidence of millennials killing things. Millennials killing CFAX. Surely they'll consider it ironic and retro soon. And start. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think it was maybe the digital switch-off or the, the analogue switch-off rather when TV's a whole move to digital because digital teletext never took off. No, that's true, even despite Johnny Vegas's best efforts. Yeah, and the monkey. Well, the monkey sold his soul to PG Tips, so 
he d- he couldn't join the effort. But yeah, I think it's, it's a bit cheap to say it's the internet, but you know, you can check the Times programmes are on and you can check the sports results and the, and the news and those were the three main uses for people, I think, for teletext. You've also reminded me that on cable, which I didn't have it, but my sister did, was Paramount Teletext, which had the mailbox, which was like a cool gang of people chatting about sitcoms and comedy. And I always wanted to be part of their gang and phone in and you could actually phone in on the phone and leave a message but I'd go around there and read it until my sister shouted at me to put the normal TV back on because <laughs> I wanted to read about people talking about Frasier and um, what was the other one Grace Under Fire they always used to show but for some reason someone's put all of the archives of Mailbox on the internet as well so maybe there's a lot of nostalgia out there still for teletext well it's frequently said there's too much internet I think that's proof of it and that there's not enough teletext okay well I'm hoping that we don't run out of internet before somebody properly chronicles your next choice because you know she made such an important impact on history or so she told us Well, that's a clip from my absolute favourite Transition Vamp song, Wendy James's tribute to the theme from You and Me, Born to be Sold. But Gillian, why are we talking about Transvision Vamp? I have an older sister. She's 12 years older than me and we shared a room when I was younger. So on our bedroom wall, there was my poster of the Care Bears and Jem, if you remember the doll that was truly, truly outrageous. Oh, with the flashing earrings. With the flashing earrings. Yeah, I actually had it. I wish I still did because it was very cool. And next to that were my sister's posters of uh, Nick Kershaw's Radio Musicola. Yeah, exactly. I was looking at an old Smash Hits and I saw the cover of it and it was like a Proustian Madeleine with blonde streaks. Also, she was very into Transvision Vamp and she used to play the song called, I think it was I Want Your Love, where it goes, I don't want your looks or Marilyn or Bobby D. And I didn't know who Bobby D was. And I thought about it and there was only one Bobby D that was very famous in my mind and that was Bobby Davro. <laughs> What Bobby, Bobby D? Darren. Was it? I thought it was Rob. You know what? I no, thought no, it was no. It, but I think it was Bob Dylan. But you know, surely your first guess would have been Bobby Darren, not Bobby Daffro. Well, I didn't know who Bobby. Da- it was. It was before Drive Bunny, so you know the <laughs> kids didn't know who Bobby Darren was at that point. I really liked Bobby Davro then, and I watched a clip of him a few years ago, and he was absolutely unwatchable, which surprised me because he was such a big thing for years. But obviously, he was so big that Transvision Vamp rejected him in favour of your love. <laughs> but yeah, well, I, I, as I remember, it was Wendy James and some anonymous blokes that no one really paid any attention to. Ah, uh, well, there was... I think the guitarist was called Nick Christie and Sayer, and it was Tex Axile. Oh, that's a cool name. I don't know what he did, but that is a brilliant name. And I think he looked like somebody left over from an actual punk band, so I'm assuming he was. I can't remember who the fourth bloke was. Sorry, fourth bloke. But (laughs) they began that whole thing of the female-fronted band, where they were an actual band, and everyone ignored the rest of them. Because, you know, I will argue with Blondie, everyone Mm. knew who the others were. Yeah. They were cool-looking boys, and, you know, they all contributed 
interrupted an interviews. I think Transvision Rabbit started the thing of, oh, just let her speak, she's controversial. And it was a pattern repeated by several bands in the 90s that I won't be naming. Yeah. But I've got to confess, I, I don't know where you stood on Transvision Vamp. I never really liked them because I was just about at the age where I was already quite cynical. I already liked people like the Jesus and Mary Chain, NWA, Belinda Carlisle, which I'll come back to in a minute. But <laughs> she is relevant for a reason. But I kind of found Transvision Vamp a bit too forced, a bit too false, a bit here is what you're supposed to be like. And I also thought the whole whatever, I'm not having a go at Wendy James trying to push feminism as an agenda. But the way she played with it, with the costumes and so on. I was a teenage boy at school. I can tell you from the, the rest of my peers that that message was lost on them. I can imagine so. For the nuances may be a little bit thrown to the wayside there. Absolutely, yeah. That was kind of trying to have your cake and eating it, and no, it was just eating, really. Well, that's what I was trying to remember, because obviously she was in Smash Hits at the time, but I don't remember much about her interviews. She seemed, but looking back at her, she had that very, very pink lipstick, and she was almost like a uh, Diana Dawes and Madonna thrown together in some kind of strange genetic accident. You know, she had that very uh, wild child kind of look about her, which was a bit of a thing at the time, as I remember, because they had oh what's her name she married um bill wyman Mandy smith that's the one yeah and it seems to be very much of that ilk as i was about to sort of come back to i remember things like which video was it sister moon where she's actually basically naked in the video with a hand over herself you know and oh yeah that's coming around soon yeah i mean that is making a point you know because intercut with footage of animal testing and i think i think that may be banned by top of the pops but i remember there being great excitement again amongst boys in school that it had been on the chart show uh-huh. where hey we've all taped it off the late night repeat and I do remember thinking yeah I mean but you know when they're watching the video for Circle in the Sand by Belinda Carlisle at least I'm not making any excuses <laughs> at least I'm honest about the reasons I like this video you know yeah. there's, there's no hidden hidden agenda there but do, do you remember what was her kind of reaction from the more kind of serious press at the time I suppose pop music wasn't covered in newspapers and kind of quote unquote literary magazine oh serious magazines in the way it was now but I don't remember if she was ever in things like Q. My memory is that certainly the NME probably Melody Maker as well and imagine Q treated Transvision Vamp sort of with rubber gloves almost Yeah. and there was a number of reasons for that. I think one of them will have been good old fashioned sexism. Yeah. I think one of them will have been that they were a very kind of cleaned up sanitised version of indie calculated to sell records which later people would have a problem with that because as much as i love blur what are they but abstract ideas polished up to sell to people yeah they're almost you know they're not manufactured bands but there is manufacturing that and i say that as someone who absolutely loves blur exactly and the i think the third thing was that was when you started to get the collins McConey and quantic sort of writers in yeah his whole race on detra was to say i like this but i will take the piss out of it as well wendy james was not somebody who reacted well to having the piss taken out of her so no. i think they may have been frosty relations for that reason she kind of thought she was some kind of public figure but often she was treated this kind of starlet sort of thing well that's the reason i have such a problem with born to be sold is she is actually comparing all these icons of the 20th century unfavorably Mm -hmm. to herself 
and saying, I'll still be around, you know, I'll be the one that's remembered. And like, I've not seen Dominic Sandbrook's book on the late 80s yet, but I don't think there'll be a chapter ahead of Wendy James. <laughs> Is there a Dominic Sandbrook book about the late 80s yet? Well, there will be. Well, um, maybe maybe write to him, just, you know, uh, impress upon him the importance of Wendy James. He's not going to mention Captain Zep's space detective, so I'm not talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, were they one of those bands that kind of, they had one huge album and then sort of fell off a cliff? Because I remember they had one called Velveteen. That was the second one. I think yeah. that did nearly as well. But the third one, was it Little Magnets and the Bubble of Babble? But that didn't actually That's come it. out in the UK. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, th- do you know what? Now I think about it, they strike me as one of those bands that was the cliched big in Japan band. Um, so maybe it wasn't released here, but was out overseas. Well, the only reason I ever heard anything from it was, do you remember, in concert on Radio 1? Yeah, vaguely, yeah. Where they'd have like, it was an hour slot and they'd have two bands come on in rapid succession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was listening one week because the second band was the Mock Turtles, who I absolutely adored at the time. And for anyone listening out there, they have more songs than Can You Dig It? Some of them they did in this half hour, but... I can't think of any, but I'll take your word for it. (laughs) But Transvision and Vamp were on first, and I heard the end of their set, which was a song apparently from that third album called Twangy Wig Out. What a great title. It's basically the riff from Jetem with her singing, I want to be your twangy wig out over the top. And at the end, just before the handover to the mock turtle, she said, good night, I love you. And you hear just a massive chorus of get your tits out. Oh, gosh. Live on Radio 1. Well, that's that's the audience that, unfortunately, I don't think they wanted that audience, but that's... I mean, that's, you that's know... That's the audience re- they got, that's what Well, that's what the record company brought to the table, I think. Yeah. You know, I was seeing bands in the mid-2000s and people would be shouting, get your tits out at the, uh, at the bass player if they had a female bass player. So I think it's just... This is a general, just not very enlightened in indie gigs. Well, I, I also did wonder if, because if it was during the handover, if poor old Martin Coogan might come on stage and be really confused. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bit of gender equality. Yeah. But did you actually like Transition Man for yourself? That's the, the key question here. I didn't own any of their songs because um, my sister had the tapes and I didn't kind of seek that. They were a band that I kind of existed when I was a child and then I forgot about them later. And my sister also really liked uh, the colour field. So she used to play a lot of tapes of them a lot. And they were something that I've never heard anyone else really talk about. Yeah, for a band where people only know one song by them, they had a long career, the colour mm-hmm. field. Well, we, um, apparently my dad did some building work on a studio where they recorded one of their albums. So we had a demo tape of something that was unreleased and I've no idea what it was or whether anyone still has it. But yeah, I don't think we'll be selling it at an Antiques Roadshow, put it that way. Okay, well, when you were going to see one of those female-fronted bands in the 90s, I do wonder if you might have been swigging a bottle of this. Right, well, that's actually... I couldn't find the app I was looking for, so that's Charlie Bucket and Grandpa Joe drinking fizzy lifting drinks, which (laughs) brings us round to... Gillian, tell us about Orbits. This was something that really came and went. It was a bottle of clear soft drink, rather like Tab Clear, if you remember that, and suspended in this were small pearls of unknown substance. So it was kind of like a lava lamp, but you could drink it. 
Apparently that substance is called gel and gum, which doesn't oh. make me feel very confident in its nutritional qualities. Well, that's the thing. A drink with bits in is its never really appealing, is it? There's always something in your brain that makes you think, this is going to make me very, very ill. And maybe that's why it, it didn't really take off. Because I remember it existing in a shop near my sixth form college for about three months in 1998. And then I think the novelty value market dwindled and people just decided to drink drinks that didn't have bits in them yeah i seem to remember it as being the ultimate mutation of you know because this was something i was exactly the right age for being at university it was that whole craze for it was just a like an incremental thing of drinks that it started with started with hooch yeah the alcoholic lemonade and then it went up and up you got things like two dogs and then memphis mist and rolling rock all of those slightly more adventurous each time until it got to no remembers this thick head oh which was a kind of like it was an almost it's almost like a, a solid set syrup that didn't move it was almost like jelly in a bottle and there's a big controversy about it because the iconography at that time was that kind of you know the stark black and white and color you know like the ties and rabbits or the early covers of loaded yeah, they had yeah, one yeah. Then, but it was like kind of what i can only describe as a benny hill about to be arrested for serial killing in a school cap Ooh. and mps were saying that character will appeal to children and it is alcohol take this off sale i don't know why it was withdrawn for that reason and i think orbits was like the last gasp of that whole phenomenon really yeah i remember alcohol pops being this huge moral panic but this was a this was a soft drink so maybe they were trying to get the the youth market and when they got old enough served this is back in the days where you could get served underage quite easily without having to flash id so it would make sense to kind of build up on that but i it's hard because when bubble tea i don't know if you you've come across bubble tea at all there was about 17 cafes in central london selling it at one point you know in the places where they used to have fish pedicure zones it was a thing for a while and i think it's a very similar kind of concoction like the pearls floating in the liquid yeah like you say i think it's just a it's a novelty but they've misunderstood the idea that it would appeal to anyone yeah it looked good but you don't want to be drinking it just rewinding back a bit though i mean i do remember that moral panic and i remember at the time i thought it was nonsense i still think it was nonsense now because it was mainly students drinking alcopops yeah it really really was and you would walk past kids who they were drinking but drinking white lightning no that was always 15 year old drink of choice yeah or frosty jacks where i was <laughs> was that an even lower rent white lightning i think that's yeah i think that's the value white lightning almost um, <laughs> value I wasn't yeah like the, the for the uh, discerning 14 year old who wants to be a bit thrifty yeah and who has some paint they need to strip in their spare time as exactly well. you get drunk and uh, do a bit of diy with yeah. the same fluid I actually bought Frosty Jacks from Morrison's in my hometown when I was uh, 15. And then I went back there when I was 28 and I got ID'd and they refused to sell me a bottle of wine. So there you go. Nanny State in action. Just to be clear, I don't have a a Benjamin Button situation in which I'm I'm aging backwards. They just don't like um, any kind of underage drinking anymore. I got ID'd when I was uh, 22 and I went to the I went to the Asda to buy a copy of The Guardian because it had a free DVD of Letters to Brezhnev with it which was a cert 15 and they didn't think I was over 15 so I just went to a different till and then I went home and watched Letters to Brezhnev well I got ID'd buying the feminist issue with the 
New European last year. Oh, gosh. Which was quite alarming. Yeah, the, the self-service till went off in a popular high street supermarket. You can't have kids reading pro-European propaganda. Well, let alone feminism. Exactly. It'll turn their brains into squiggly balls of wool. But yeah, where I grew up, I think it was um, Bacardi Breezers seemed to be the 17-year-old's drink of choice. Until I got six form and I decided I was going to be a person who drank gin like a grown-up because gin seemed like a grown-up drink. And um, Bacardi Breezers and Alcopops were more for... I don't know what you would have called them where you lived, but um, townies was the phrase they used where I grew up. Ah, scallies. Scallies, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't want to say chav because chavs, which is the more widest known term, that's become quite an unpleasant word. But townies were very... There was a very distinct culture and I think you get this in a lot of small towns where you have the people who go clubbing and don't like any music that doesn't have a certain BPM and then you get the people who just hang around in terrible pubs pretending they like snake bite. So I feel like uh, alcohol pops became a victim of that almost where where I grew up anyway. Well, we've got another sort of localised drinking phenomenon that you've brought up which is uh, slightly less alcoholic and more caffeinated. So what was the Seattle Coffee Company? Well, it was. Was it the precursor to Starbucks in the UK? I don't know. All I know is they were bought out by Starbucks. They were. But when I, verging into personal anecdotes again here, when I was uh, 16, I started going out with someone who was um, a lot more middle class than me. And part of that was we used to go to Manchester a lot because he was given money to go and buy clothes from Kendall's, which is a very posh place to buy clothes. And we'd end up going to a coffee shop over the road, which was Seattle Coffee Company. And I'd never been in one of these American style coffee lounges. You know, I'd only seen them on Fraser and Friends at this point because they didn't have them where I lived. So it kind of became a bit of a symbol of um, urban sophistication almost for 16 year old me. You could get drinks that weren't just called coffee. You could get chocolate covered uh, coffee beans and you could sit and read newspapers rather than just having a cup of coffee in McDonald's on a plastic seat so it all felt very fancy and I, I would think when I grow up this is what my life's going to be like I'm going to have dinner parties I'm going to eat volivants I'm going to have bottles of wine with candles in them that melt all down the bottle of wine is a very sophisticated thing I'll drink Bloody Marys and I will have this thing they call the latte every day you know it was kind of like Peter Mandelson being offered mushy peas and thinking it was guacamole that was aspirational to me. I wanted to live in a guacamole place. And how many of those things have you achieved in your current lifestyle? Well, not very many, to be honest. I don't think to this day I've had Bloody Mary. And after thinking about it, I think there were alcoholic drinks I rather prefer that don't have vegetables in them. I think part of this idea of an aspirational lifestyle was the kind of partly the new labour, we're all middle class now with our metropolitan hummus eating latte drinking ways, and partly uh, a stack of old witch magazines from the 80s and my parents loft which had the aforementioned wine bottle with the candlestick in it it is funny what you think of as sophisticated when you're yeah. young it really really is people are either going to be laughing at this or recoiling in horror i when i was about 14 for some reason decided the spectator was the height of sophistication <laughs> sneakily trying to read it in the adult section in the library well it seems like quite an adult publication they didn't have women up front with their clothes falling off like the daily star well, well, yeah, I don't think I really quite understood a lot of the political slant of it. I just thought, you know, oh, it's got long words and some jokes in it, and there, is, there are some cartoons that are quite funny. Yeah, I used to read, my dad used to read the Daily Telegraph for the crossword, and I used to read the magazine, and I used to feel very fancy about that. 
And now I, I just find all colour supplements generally quite irrelevant to my life. So I have obviously not achieved that level of aspiration that I anticipated. It's interesting, though, that Seattle Coffee Company, by the sound of it, it sounds like it was halfway between sort of the traditional cafe culture and what we have now. Yeah, and there's no almost no trace of it on the internet. There's no kind of branding or information about where they were. I know there was one on um, Deansgate in Manchester, which was basically... if. if you don't know Manchester that's sort of like the uh, the Fifth Avenue it's where all the uh, nice bars and restaurants and shops are so it was obviously going for a certain market and it was you know paying the rent for that location it just doesn't seem to have endured in any way at all and Starbucks just came in there and ate it up what's really weird is because i remember from around that sort of same time in liverpool really i mean we didn't have any chain coffee places until quite late really Mm. i think there were just cafes dotted around there were places that you know kind of the indie kids just sort of decided from nowhere that's an indie cafe and were they always the kind of formica classic cafe type things no they were the more kind of like kind of guardianista ones where you know they were appealing to a very kind of green party aesthete kind of thing and people just barreling in before clubs in their Britpop gear <laughs> no sorry we drink coffee here now that sounds like the kind of thing I would have wanted to go to and I probably just stumbled across the slightly boogie version or something there was a place in Manchester called the Occasional Cafe when I was a student which was a squat cafe they just turned up in various abandoned buildings it was essentially a pop-up cafe but it was a pay-as-you-go kind of thing and I always felt am I allowed to go in here if I've been to Starbucks in my life Maybe not. I've read a George Monbiot book, so maybe it's fine. And people are very anti-chain now, and I entirely understand why. And, you know, I live in London where if there's a if there's a spare space on a street, someone will put a Space NK in it. But I did actually quite like the idea of being able to access these things. I've been able to go to Waterstones and buy actual books instead of trying to find them in charity shops, that kind of thing. And I think Seattle Coffee Company, I'm a little bit fond of it because it reminds me of getting out of where I grew up and looking looking at things that everyone else had access to and deciding whether that was something I liked as well. I moved to Manchester when I was um, to start my degree and I don't think I even looked for it and I wasn't really in the market for, you know, £2 cups of coffee at that point. So it just kind of passed by without me noticing. Okay, well, if you had noticed, you could probably post about it on your next choice, which in the absence of anything at all sonic we can use from it, I've opted for this. That's a lovely MIDI rendition of Say You'll Be There by the Spice Girls, which is about <laughs> as close as I can get to putting Bolt.com in sonic form. Gillian, tell us about Bolt. Bolt was something that was offered to you when you signed up for a Hotmail address in the late 90s. So when you signed up, it said, welcome to Hotmail. Here's some things you might be interested in. And it was various email digests or newsletters that you could click on and get delivered into your inbox. And one of them was something called Bolt.com, which was the cool site for teens. 
I would love to get a recreation of Bolt.com and sit someone who's grown up with Facebook in front of it to see just how primitive it looked. If you remember MySpace, and imagine that, but without pictures and with more text. And you could have your profile. Everyone had a handle rather than their real name. You could put various badges on. You could put Mannix quotes or whatever on your profile, which is obviously what people like to do in the 90s if they're a very cool and alternative. And there were various discussion boards where you could go on and chat about music or college. Or It was, a, it was an American site, so obviously it was quite American-focused. And what I mostly remember is there was a board for Britpop. And every so often someone would go on there and say, hey, I like the Spice Girls too. Let's talk about them. And then got run off by lots of people. <laughs> no, this board is for Oasis only. But it's weird how you get these little enclaves of what I suppose were Web 1.0, as we didn't know it then. And they flowered and then just withered off as things came to replace them. Well, the one that I really remember... Well, I say I really remember it. I remember it so well that I had to go hunting for the name of it earlier. And it took me about 15 minutes. Was there one called Face Party? I remember Face yeah, Party. Yeah, and the main reason I remember that was it was one such a big thing that there was an early Big Brother contestant. I think her name might have been Leslie, who there was a bit of a tabloid sensation because on her Face Party page it said something like, I can't stand Munter Men or something. <laughs> What an innocent time that was she got in trouble know, for that was, on social media. You know? now people Failing keep... at Leslie evicted week two. You know? Yeah, I'm sure now every reality show has someone who will sit down with contestants on day one and says, right, passwords. But back then, it was, it was a time when, and this is something that I find very odd about Facebook now, is you were told to never use your real name on the internet. Do not use your real name. Don't post your picture. You know, never put your address or anything like that. And Facebook kind of aggressively moves away from that saying no we need your you need to have your real name or you need to send in your passport to prove this is your real name or what have you which i've heard just happens people and i quite like the idea of you know on the internet nobody knows you're a dog from the the late 90s early 2000s i miss kind of forums where people would go on and just for words for better word chat shit and there was no kind of is this building my brand i sound like such an, an old man now you know old man yells at cloud.com but it felt like if you're a teenager and you were kind of forging your identity to have this space where you could be somebody who wasn't you and discuss things with people it was such a huge thing and if the internet had existed when I was a younger teen it would have been so important to me and I wish that it had to an extent but I think now there's more of an emphasis on putting yourself your real life self on there and making that your online persona and I don't know how I feel about that I kind of think that's equivalent to really what we did with fanzines in that people like myself did use our real names but what you were able to do with what 32 pages of photocopied a5 folded and stapled you know you were able to rebuild a new version of yourself who you wanted to be to other people exactly nothing to do with the real world the real world didn't come crashing in because the effort it would have taken i mean the big one was the doctor who fanzine we did phase which was originally top was the taunting for liking doctor who was relentless no matter how actually cool you might have been but this was we reclaimed it because after doctor who finished all that was left for me and the fans i knew to do was because we liked indie music was to meet up at gigs so it became kind of we go to see indie bands oh 
we like Doctor Who as well was the the, the raison d'etre and you know there were other people doing like there was like quite a high profile gay Doctor Who fanzine there was a prankster one and so on and they were all people who it was time to finally say this is who I actually am not what I've been told who I am through childhood and yeah. the early internet allowed you to do that as well and like you say it's been aggressively taken away from us I mean I have to watch what I say all of the time particularly on Twitter I'm really really careful I don't say anything particularly bad ever it's just you know what you do is now so closely tied to your everyday life that it's thrown back into your everyday life and that's not always good yeah and I wonder how that's different for people who actually have had the internet for their entire life so it feels very normal for them not to be internet persona and normal person one thing I remember from Bolt.com is they had boards for each country and there was a group of what would probably be now um, internet atheists on Reddit, you know, that kind of uh, cringy, rebellious teenager thing. They got on a board, the Kazakhstan board, and made it their little clubhouse. And it was, I was never, I never felt cool enough to join in, but it was little things like that. And to some extent, Reddit has recreated that in a way because you have your username, there's no profile, they have various subreddits which are almost like the Yahoo groups you had back in the day, or Usenet, if you remember that era. But also Reddit is a horrid cesspool of misogyny and Donald Trumpism, so there's that aspect to it as well. Yeah, I remember some fan communities when I very first found the internet, which were enthusiastic and positive, and then got overrun by people trying to be outrageous, you know... It all just went horrible, really. Yeah, I used to post a lot on Guardian Talk, actually, and that was a similar kind of complete strangers coming to discuss things. And there was a very long-running argument between one person and another where one poster offered to meet the other and fight them for a thousand euro because they uh, the other poster kept goading them with an insult that I'm not sure would be okay to say on here. Uh, somewhat bad taste, but it was something that was so ridiculous it couldn't possibly be true. And then there was a troll who pretended to be a Norwegian who was also of Scottish ancestry living in Hemel Hempstead and would say things like Scotland altered which apparently is Norwegian for Scotland forever but you can't really do that kind of nonsense on things like Facebook because your real your real self is right there and that for me it makes it a whole lot less fun it's nice to actually the element of you know you never really lose touch with people now is quite a nice thing in a lot of ways and it's nice that you can remember someone and look them up and have a chat if you want to do that but you also don't really get that kind of freedom of separating out trying on these new hats and seeing how they look there's also there's always somebody who is gonna take it too far and try to hurt people and you know whatever the subject i mean if you're male you get it less on twitter but if you're female there's always somebody coming along to have a go at you whatever you say if you imagine kind of like facebook where with no personal details or pictures it sounds great on guardian talk there was gas top facts where people <laughs> these made up facts about gas top and then somebody went on wikipedia and vandalized this small town in texas saying the mayor of small town is gas top he made everything international gas top day and the currency is now three gas tops to the dollar and that kind of thing is so much better than people calling others a soy boy beater cook Oh, you don't know my Wikipedia story then. Go on. During the William and Kate wedding... Oh, yeah. I was stuck at home waiting for uh, furniture delivery 
and they were so bored that, you know, I didn't have the TV and didn't have the radio on because that was all that was on. Everything that was on the internet was about them. I just got so fed up that I changed the Wikipedia page. I'm probably not proud of this now, but I added all kinds of spurious guests into the guest list. <laughs> Lots of them, you know, like Richard Herring got taken out straight away. You know, we don't want the likes of him associated with the royal couple. But there was Honey Monster Bracket, because they all had their occupation in brackets. Yeah. So Honey Monster Brackets Puffs stayed and stayed and stayed for weeks and people were texting me daily saying it's still there. So you say that, but I'm led to believe at the most recent royal wedding, there was some uh, strange reality star that seemed completely incongruous there. So I actually now think it's almost plausible that Honey Monster, you know, maybe he's got aristocratic ancestors and he just gets an invite by proxy. I look forward to King Honey Monster the first appearing on the back of my coins. Well, if you suggest that to the UKIP mob, that will certainly throw the cat amongst the pigeons. Oh, wait, no, 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 because of the nanny state, sugar puffs don't exist anymore. They're called honey monster something. Anyway, we're moving on to the last choice now, which, in again, in the absence of any reasonably suitable clip, I'll opt for this. chill theme that nobody remembers because they try to forget it to introduce what was apparently the sixth form soap in book form by hunter davis jillian s-t-a-r-s what this is a good example of things that you pick up at car boot sales and read because you're very for some reason really into the 80s i was born in 82 but i've got older siblings and i learned to read very early and soon got bored with biff and kipper and chip and my parents thought a nice day out on a Sunday was to go to Gisborne Cattle Market and see what was for sale. What cattle, probably? Well, not not on a Sunday. It was all in the in the stalls. They'd have people selling fishing reels, old jackie annuals and things. I ended up picking up volumes of a series called Stars, which was set in a comprehensive in London. So already quite exotic to me. And it was designed to be a six-form soap, almost like a early Hollyoaks in book form. And they had various... Um, one plot I remember is a girl saved up and saved up for a sassy job to buy leather jackets and her mum said no what are you doing that's that's a waste of money and then she bought it and she went out in the rain and it got ruined and it's very upsetting and i also remember there was a character called dim who was shot for dimitri and he's his parents owned a chippy and i quite like the idea of greek chippies existing because that wasn't something near me it seemed like a very cool london thing where you had all these different cultures together instead of just the place down the road that did battered sausage or something well i'm just quite still quite gobsmacked by the fact they were written by hunter davis apparently around the early 1990s because he was the big with it writer of the 60s because obviously he wrote here we go around the mulberry bush and yeah. the first official biography of the beatles yeah he was the big beatles guy wasn't he and you know years hunter davis i thought he was just a, an 80s 
teen novel writer because that was my first exposure to him well he did call one of these books apparently she's leaving home so was mm-hmm. did you read that was it about somebody who met a man from the motor trade and did it nearly have delia derbyshire doing the backing until george martin put his foot down and said he wanted a string arrangement well maybe if they filmed it they they, they could have done but i don't remember that one actually i remember there was one called a case of sam and ella where sam and ella were two people that got together and it was all scandalous did they catch salmonella that's that's, I mean, that's like a fist of fun sitcom it is, is yeah ian, ian ian sam and ian ella get together to solve um, infectious disease cases yeah it sounds like it was about a one of the teenage protagonists running off with an older man or something but i couldn't confirm that well there's also rapping with raffi which i assume was a comedy one where they formed a rap duo because that did happen in every teen thing in the late yeah. 80s do you remember fresh and fly on grange hill yes yes i do yeah that was um my boyfriend's got a real thing about people who shouldn't be rapping doing rapping it makes him absolutely cringe his face inside out and i now i want to find a clip of fresh and fly and play it for him do you remember who fresh and fly were up against in the rap battle though i don't was one of them michelle gale michelle gale was on the fresh and fly where they were up against rap family patterson who apparently were a real act which just came out and rap family patterson's in the house whoa wow that was all you saw of them it would be like what would happen if someone my age tried to write a drill battle or something people had very scant idea of what rap actually was apart from rappers even at the time it was cringeworthy mm. i was young enough to be taken in by you know i thought vanilla ice was a very cool rapper because i i obviously wasn't really getting exposed to things like public enemy but i do remember my dad saying rap would be dead by 1991 it's just a fad and that did not come to pass so but it's interesting that i would liken it to the way that you know you got all those kind of late 70s acts that were sort of like a 50 year old idea of punk like the motors ba robertson joe jackson where you know time has been kind of plastic Patron, definitely where time has been much kinder to them than you'd expect people listen to them now and think these were actually great records it doesn't matter how uncool Mm. they looked on top of the pops but rap that missed the point still sounds like rap that missed the point there was a um paragraph going around twitter from a book and it was an academic cultural studies type thing and it described how rap worked and how rap is about apparently stating who you are telling you about their crew and then outlining what you plan to do to the opposition and i'm i'm not sure that's what all rap does that doesn't sound the message to me or welcome to the terror dome no one ever really mentions morris and the miners yeah i think that's kind of been no platform now yeah <laughs> wasn't it there tony hawks wasn't it i will give credit to him that is a novelty record it's a comedy record it's a parody but it's it's timing his delivery his pastiche of particularly of ad rock is spot on yeah he he obviously has a love for what he's pastiching which is where a lot of these things really fall flat when you have i don't know if you really get comedy songs so much it used to be such a mainstay of sketch shows the parody song the now show i think used to do it with mitch ben i don't know if they still do because i um i value my blood pressure too much these days to listen to the now show but there was that whole um let's parody something but fall very slightly short because we're not really that invested in what it is and it just 
it makes me just want to sigh loudly, really. Well, do you remember what Morris Minor and the Majors' this other single was? I don't, actually. I only remember Stutter Rap, because that was the one that turned up in charity shops a lot. It was This Is The Chorus, their Stock Ake and Waterman parody. Oh, wow. Which was actually better than most Stock Ake and Waterman records. I was about the right age for Stock Ake and Waterman. I really hated them at the time. They Everything just sounded very, very similar. But I will always stand for the Reynolds girls I'd rather jack. It's not the national anthem, you know. Oh, no, I said I was trying to be down with the kids. I said stan, as in, you know, be an obsessive fan about it. Stand up for it. But maybe it should be the national anthem. Well, that's as controversial a moment as any to go out on. Gillian, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.